for anyone just beginning their search for the teachings of the Buddha who walked into a bookstore or happened to go online to look, they would be overwhelmed with the vast numbers and range of material available. But there's one teaching that all Buddhist groups, sects, traditions, cultures, rest all of their other teachings upon. And it is the teachings that the Buddha first offered after his own awakening is the teachings on the Four Noble Truths. The teaching on the Four Noble Truths is important because it is the primary and the foundational teachings of the Buddha's realization of the way things are. And it was the way he articulated his realization of the human condition. We could say that the Four Noble Truths are the bedrock upon which all of the teachings and techniques and lineages and practices, just the multiplicity that are available to us, that they rest upon. So it is important for us to hear the teachings on the Four Noble Truths and to look at them from the perspective of the practice or the practices that we have undertaken here or otherwise in your life. And to see if the practices that you are putting so much effort and so much intention and so much uh, care with to see if those practices really have anything to do with what the Buddha taught. And if so, what? The Four Noble Truths were not invented by the Buddha. Whether the Buddha ever came into the world and realized the truth, the truth is the truth. The the truth is the way things are. The way things are is the way things are. The wisdom of a Buddha is here is someone who has wandered around innumerable thousands of lifetimes in all the realms of existence, discovering what is to be discovered and developing a mind able to know anything he turned his mind to. Looking for the understanding of why we suffer and how can we disentangle our hearts and minds from suffering. The Buddha's realization of those understandings he articulated in the Four Noble Truths. The first Noble Truth is a statement of fact. It reads, the truth of dukkha. Dukkha exists. So it's important for us to understand what dukkha is. When I first started practicing the Dharma, good teachers, but the, the translation of the truth of dukkha was, life is suffering. Well, I was 25 and I was full of Vip and vinegar, and I had my whole life ahead of me, and 
I was ambitious and energetic and enjoying life. And to hear someone say, life is suffering, just did not resonate. It just didn't connect. The first retreat I went to, I sat way up back. As, as I mentioned earlier, it was totally by accident. I had no interest in meditation or Buddhism or spirituality. And it was just the furthest thing in my, from my mind to do a meditation retreat. I thought I was going on a holiday. <laughs> the power of delusion in my mind was immense. <laughs> Nevertheless, I arrived at the scene, saw what the schedule was, nearly passed out, decided I'd set up back so I could have easy exit anytime I wanted, leaned against the piano for two weeks, and while my body was in utter screaming agony, and my mind wasn't much better. I wasn't suffering. Hello? <laughs> Ten years later, I found my way to Burma and was practicing with Saito Pandita in a monastery there, and one of his translators used the term, the oppressive nature of phenomena, to as a translation of the word dukkha. By that time, I got it. The oppressive nature of phenomena, I, I can resonate with that. I get it. I've, I've experienced some pain and some, you know, discomfort with heat and hunger and other oppressive things. So I got it. I began to open to what dukkha meant at a personal experiential level. But it was interesting to reflect on why it was so difficult for me to open to the truth of dukkha. And what I saw was that if I acknowledged that I was suffering, to use that term, in my mind, it meant that I had failed. I was a failure. I couldn't hack it. I couldn't cut it. I couldn't make it. I was, well, failing. And I didn't realize then that all beings experience dukkha, every one of us. What does dukkha mean? The first meaning of dukkha is pain. It is the obvious physical and mental pain that we all feel at times. And it's not just because we sit still for hours a day that we feel pain in the body. We feel pain when we're sick, when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we hurt ourselves, when we slam our finger in the door, when there's just all kinds of causes for us to feel physical pain. And there isn't anyone or any being that doesn't feel physical pain at times in their life. There's also very obvious mental or emotional pain. The feelings of anxiety, loneliness, fear, shame, humiliation, self-consciousness, feeling betrayed, jealous, angry. The list, as you now have all discovered, is endless. And we all experience that. We all experience all of those at some point in our life. And for someone to say, hey, you know, dukkha exists, seems like such a, well, yeah, you're right, it does. It is so obvious that this dimension of dukkha is called dukkha dukkha. It is the pain of unpleasant physical and mental experience. Pretty obvious. But there's a second dimension of the meaning of dukkha, which is subtler and a little more difficult to 
get. But let me share it with you. Everything changes. Everything that we have put together in our life to provide a foundation for our security and our happiness and our ease in life, our learning and our career and our relationships and our finances and the schooling and where we live and how we live and how much debt we don't carry and our car and which car we drive and why and everything about our happiness is dependent upon conditions that change. When the conditions that support our happiness change, our happiness goes with it. Huh. Okay. But we have become very skillful at anticipating that change, and so we keep trying to stay just one step ahead of the change to ensure that even if things change, we're still going to have plenty of foundation for our support and our happiness. But we all know how abruptly and unexpectedly very personal conditions can change so dramatically and so unidirectionally that there may not be any recovery. Any one of us can go to the doctor for our next annual exam and get a diagnosis that will change your life. And there isn't really anything that any of us can do to ensure against that happening. We can take our vitamins and we can do our exercise and we can do our yoga and deep breathing and aerobics and take vitamins and eat all organic food or if you're not into organic food, you can eat lacto-ovo-vegetarian, what, whatever, and it can still happen. Or, as many of us have found, the change in the economy, which through no fault of our own, has affected all of us quite profoundly, and some of us dramatically. And we, well, we, we could say, why me? Well, why anybody? Why anybody? Because everyone lives with this same level of insecurity. And while we do all we can to ensure our own happiness and security and stability with agreements and relationships and, and structures and organizations and bank accounts that as much as we can to kind of hold things in place, we all know that just on the periphery of our vision is this looming fear of what if. And we live with that all the time. What if? And while depending on changeable conditions, physical, mental, environmental, social, governmental, political, while living dependent upon them for our happiness, we will remain forever insecure. Ooh. <laughs> okay. That level of insecurity is dukkha. Now, right now, some of us are doing really well. Healthy, young, prosperous, got a good job, got a nice family, nice kids, grandkids. We're doing all we can. It's all coming back to us. We're living at the top of the heap for now. And all of that can change and will. And we know that. Pleasure is pleasure. That's not dukkha dukkha. But because it changes outside of our control, it's dukkha. 
That is the meaning of dukkha, being subject to unforeseeable, uncontrollable, changing conditions. And as long as we rely on them, our happiness is insecure. That's a little bit sobering. But there's a third meaning of the word dukkha, which is also more subtle and more pervasive. And it comes in two flavors. There's the macro view and the micro view. And the macro view is we're born. And for the first few years of our life, our parents or other caregivers doing the best they can, feed us, bathe us, clothe us, love us, educate us, soothe us, coo us, cuddle us, play with us, whatever they can to keep us happy. Changing our diapers, brushing our teeth, doing everything for us for as long as they can get away with it, or as long as we can get away with it. And then gradually, they say, you're on your own, kid. <clears throat> now you pick up the ball. And doing as best we can at whatever age we start and picking up more of the burden as we go along, now we, each one of us, has to take on the burden of caring for this mind and body. So we have this body and you have to feed it every day. And when you reach a certain age, you have to earn the money to buy the food to feed this body. And to earn the money reliably, you have to have an education. And if you want to have all the food that you want in all your life, you need a good education. That's 16 years of schooling, which is dukkha in and of itself. <laughs> and just eating is, is only the fun part. Then you've got to take care of it all the way through. <laughs> And while it's on its process, you have to bathe every day. You have to groom yourself. You have to get a certain amount of sleep. You have to make sure that you repair any damage that happens to the body for whatever reasons. You have to avoid disease. And you have to keep moving because, you know, if you sit still too long, it's like being on retreat. <laughs> and that's dukkha. And, you know, we do the best we can. The body is the easy part. We also have this mind, and we have to keep this mind entertained. We have to keep it, you know, moving and curious and filled with new things to learn and do and become and have and get and think and believe. And why? Because if we don't, we get bored, we get depressed, we get anxious, we get fearful, we get upset, we get jealous. We get, well, you know the catalog as well as I do. And if you don't keep your mind satisfied, it's miserable. And you have to do it. You can't get anybody to do it for you. <laughs> we try. We enlist all kinds of people to keep us entertained. And yet we still are left alone taking care of this mind and body. And we have to do this every day. And we have to do it every week. And we have to do it for one, two, three, four, five, some of us six, seven, eight, or more decades. At the end of which, everything you've invested into that body, into taking care of it, goes in a box and goes in a hole in the ground. <laughs> Some would say, bad investment. <laughs> but there's more that can be accomplished in a lifetime than just filling up space in the ground. We can use our time wisely. We can practice the Dharma. We can be of service to others. We can live a life of great benefit through developing wisdom and understanding and compassion and acting in the world to help 
relieve others of their dukkha. This is a noble life to do that. And we all do in, in so many ways. That's the macro view. The, just the oppressiveness of that burden of carrying this body and mind along as best we can. It is a burden. And we all have to do it. We, we, we cannot hand it off to anyone else. It's hard to open to that truth, to the truth of just how much that is to carry around. Because we're faced with the fact, what else can you do? That's the macro view. The micro view is we have six senses. We have the eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, and in the Buddhist understanding, the mind. Six sense doors. They are constantly being stimulated. Even when the eyes are closed, we still see. Even when the ears are in a quiet place, we still hear. The body is constantly being impacted or touched with pleasant and unpleasant, changeable experience. We smell odors, we can't stop it. It just happens. And the mind, maybe the sense door that is most overstimulated all the time. And we can't shut it off. We try to numb ourselves with activity, with drugs, with drink, with sleep, with distraction, with anything to just get a little relief after we've realized that we just can't indulge in pleasure all the time. Take the thing that you most enjoy, whether it's a meal or sex or drink or drugs or silence. How much of it can you stand? <laughs> it gets boring. It gets overwhelming. It's just like, get me out of here after, you know, less than a day. And we've got decades to go. We have to carry, we have to attend to this constant stimulation of all the sense doors. That is just oppressive. That mean, that's dukkha. So we have dukkha meaning pain, obvious physical mental pain. It is the vulnerability of the insecurity that we live with all the time. And it also means the oppressive condition of life on a moment-to-moment -moment basis and in the aggregate of decades worth of taking care of this mind and body. It is hard to open to the truth of dukkha. And it is said in the text that the truth of dukkha must be investigated. Why? Because it is so painful. It's so oppressive. It's so fear-inducing that, for the most part, we live our life distracting ourselves from this truth. And so to really get it, to really get what the Buddha's talking about, well, you have to do what we're doing here. Sit down, stop running, take a look. Is there anyone in the room who has not seen dukkha today. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? It's not your fault. It's not because you're doing something wrong. It's not because you have a bad back or don't have the right cushion. Or it, it, it's, this is the way it is. This is the way it is for everyone. For women who have their own dukkha, and men certainly have theirs. Young people, they got dukkha. 
And as we get older, we get a new kind of dukkha. <laughs> Some of us think that, oh, those who live in Asia have just such a different lifestyle that they, you know, they don't have the dukkha that we have living in the West. Don't believe it. Oh, but those monks and nuns who live in monasteries or caves or in isolated, secluded places, I've tried that. There's dukkha there, too. <laughs> All beings live with this fact of dukkha. I thought for a long time it was my fault, so I remained closed. Then I thought it was my just not having gotten it yet together. It's only my insecurity because, well, I didn't really get the kind of job that could provide security and get a house and, and, and all that. It's not my, there's nothing my about it. We each have our own story about why we feel pain, why we feel insecure, and why we feel burdened. It's just a story. We all feel that, if you pay attention. Sometimes the word unsatisfactory is a good catchphrase for the word dukkha. Pain, a little sharp. Oppressive, really heavy. Insecurity, let's just call it the unsatisfactory conditions of life. When we personalize our pain, when we personalize our insecurity, when we personalize the burden we carry in life, we miss the teachings of the Buddha. It's universal, he said. <clears throat> My teacher Upandita, oh well, I guess we've all practiced with him. Our teacher Upandita, was a master, is a master, still living, of getting you to sit and see dukkha. It's just the, the, the strength of his mind in getting you to follow the instructions and follow the schedule, to sit and watch what goes on in your mind and body, is considered by many to be uh, uncompassionate. Can't move, gotta sit an hour, can only can only have four hours of sleep a night, and you got to you got to do formal practice fourteen to sixteen hours a day, and you got to walk slow all the time, and no talking, and no more fun. And you know, for most of us, kind of stepping out of our traditional Western lifestyle into that kind of monastic lifestyle, it is well, it's not fun. <laughs> And I've heard and I've defended my teacher against the, the charge that he's uncompassionate. Why? Well, because my experience is that he so knows the mind, that he knows there's suffering in the mind. No matter how well we have deceived ourselves into thinking we're happy and we got it together and we're really right on, okay? He will invite you to look more closely and hold you to it until you discover the suffering that he knows is in there. And when you discover that suffering, that dukkha, he will offer you the way out. In the teachings, there is a way out. But if you don't know your suffering, you won't look. You won't care for it. So the Buddha really offered this teaching as a compassionate response to the suffering he saw in beings everywhere he looked. This teachings we're offering you, this practice we're offering you, and your willingness to practice is the most compassionate thing you can do for yourself. Even though in the immediate experience of it, it's often painful, 
and unpleasant, but ultimately it is compassion because we discover the suffering and we discover, as the Buddha did, the cause of it. Second noble truth. The third noble truth is that there is an end to dukkha. And that's why we practice. But back to the second noble truth. Why do we suffer? Why is it that we are so dukkha doubt? if you will. Well, the Buddha looked at that, came to the understanding that all of this dukkha that I've just spoken about is caused by craving. It's caused by the activity of the mind craving, yearning, grasping onto experience of one sort or another. Aversion being just another form of craving. You understand that? Craving this to get away from that. Aversion. It's clear that we crave pleasure, isn't it? We crave pleasure, pleasurable physical experience. We crave pleasure, pleasurable social experiences. We crave pleasurable political experiences. We crave pleasurable spiritual experiences. We crave all kinds of pleasurable experiences, trying to avoid the unpleasant side of it. The Buddha said, if you can't get what you want, it's really dukkha. We know that. He also said, if you get what you want, yeah, it's also dukkha. Why? Well, if what you want is living, it's a living being of some sort, they are subject to getting sick and growing old and dying. If what you want is uh, has any digital components in it, it's outdated in six months. <laughs> if it's valuable, it is subject to theft. You have to insure it and or the government will take it. <laughs> if it's knowledge that you want and you acquire, it is soon superseded by those who understand things in a more comprehensive way. Whatever you want. Whatever achievement, accomplishment, stuff you get in order to be happy, in order to experience pleasure, doesn't last. The conditions are unstable. And while the happiness is, while the pleasure is real, the happiness is elusive. So, some of us having a glimpse of that decide that spiritual practice is the solution. So we come on retreat and we think, ah, now I'm out of the rat race, kind of. Now we've entered the mouse race. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if it isn't one thing, it's another. Did anybody here want a good sitting today? Of course we all want a good sitting. Well, as one of our students said, there's nothing like a good sitting to ruin the rest of your day because it sets up the expectation, ah, this is the way it's going to be for the rest of the retreat. And it never is. We also want and crave, the Buddha said, continued existence, as if we haven't learned our lesson yet. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, let's not get too esoteric, but let me just ask you, did you have planning mind today? Yeah, yeah. or yesterday, probably today, recently. Um, what is planning mind? Planning mind is imagining paradise elsewhere. <laughs> it's like making plans for a better me in another time. 
you know, more pleasure, less pain in sitting, when I finally get enlightened, or what, whatever you're planning for, we never plan for things to be worse. <laughs> you know, we're always looking on the, on the optimistic side, you know? So we're making plans. And did you ever make such extensive plans for somebody else? Mostly it's for me and mine. We're not wasting our time making plans for people we'll never meet. And so we're just planting seeds in the mind stream of what it's going to take to make us happy in the future. As if we could even imagine what that might be. And so we make these plans, all the while avoiding what's actually happening now. And when we get to the point of fulfilling those plans, we're not really there because we're making plans for another future. Looking for happiness in places that never come about, in activities that can't produce it. This is samsara. This is what samsara is, looking for happiness in all the wrong places. And just kind of looking for here and there and you know, imagining, oh, it must be there, whether it's a place or a person or an activity, a behavior or a thing getting it and realizing, well, that's not it. And just this endless treadmill of seeking, searching, wanting, yearning, craving, grasping, getting, having, becoming, not yet satisfied, still unsatisfactory. How long do we have to do this? When are we ever going to see that we either have enough or more isn't more satisfying? The Buddha said we also crave the end of existence. Well, let's not get too spiritual about that. Did you have a painful sitting today? Did you wish it came to an end? We do this too with the unpleasant conditions of life. Get me out of here. Get it out of here. I don't want this. The me that has to, that comes into being experiencing these unpleasant conditions, I don't want. I don't want to experience that. And we make plans and strive and struggle and do all kinds of stuff and things to get away from it. This is the second noble truth. Our dukkha that we experience personally and is universal is caused by this wanting, holding, getting, becoming, having, it's endless. Recent studies have shown that what we think will make us happy doesn't make us as happy as we think it will. But what we fear will make us unhappy also doesn't make us as unhappy as we feared. Other studies of recent lottery winners and those who experienced catastrophic illness or calamity have discovered that one year after winning the lottery or having experienced a calamity or, or catastrophe, the baseline happiness of such individuals is the same as the day before winning the lottery or the catastrophe. No happier, no, no, no less happy. Well, what we can only conclude is we don't have any idea what will make us happy. And our happiness is independent of the conditions in our life. Win the lottery, doesn't make you any happier. Get a catastrophic illness, accident, doesn't make you any unhappier. What is going on here? What we can see, because we've been paying attention, is that happiness doesn't depend on things, it depends on our mind. It depends on the mind's relationship to what's happening as you all are trying so earnestly to see and confirm and discover in your own practice. The second noble truth, craving, is to be abandoned. The work we're doing here is learning how to let go. Learning how to let go of what we're holding on to, what we're imagining will be better, what we're yearning for, what we're identified with. It's, it's a challenge. 
Nevertheless, it is the work of the Third Noble Truth. And the Third Noble Truth is the statement of the Buddha that liberation from dukkha is possible. Whew. If you'd only gotten the first two Noble Truths, you know, truth of dukkha caused by craving, good luck. and didn't show us the possibility of another way or a path out of it, we'd be in a fix. I marvel, I really marvel that someone could take a good solid look at the mind, this, the mind, the chaotic mess that's in that, right, and come up with this understanding that it can all, all that suffering, all that dukkha can be brought to an end. Usually when we hear teachings on the third noble truth, we hear teachings uh, that, that feel pretty remote, pretty distant, you know, Nibbana, you know, full enlightenment, uh, liberation. Hello, what about knee pain? <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> I just want to put things in perspective. You know, I want to talk about the third noble truth in terms of what you're doing here today. Because if it isn't here, if it isn't visible here in the now, you're not going to do it. You're not going to hold out for lifetimes of practice hoping that there's some relief out there in some far off future. I hope you're not thinking that way, it's in the here and now. Let me give you an example. One way that we see the end of craving, we see the end of clinging, and therefore the end of dukkha, is when we recognize the wandering mind. Now when your mind wanders, and you know, you sit down with all good intentions, and within seconds, the mind is off on a train of thought that you didn't invite, and while you're on that train of thought, you have no idea. You don't know your thinking. You don't know what you're thinking about. You don't know whether you like it or not, and you don't know where the train's going. Nevertheless, you're on the train, and at some point, awareness notices, oh, thinking, and you have a, a moment there to either keep thinking or let go. Hopefully, you've gotten this instruction. Let go. <laughs> Don't hang on. Let go. No matter what you're thinking about, let go. When I first started practice, what I saw is my conditioning, as you probably are seeing also. Now, when I went to university, I studied engineering, and that was back in the days before handheld computers and calculators. Everything was done with a slide rule, and there was a lot of math. There was just endless big mathematical <laughs> formulas to work out. And there was just this tremendous amount of mental calculation, multiplying, dividing, and it just, it just, I had years of higher math training of the mind. So I sit down to do my spiritual practice, and when my mind wandered, it wandered off into multiplying out <laughs> four and five digit numbers, just kind of holding it all in the head and going, da -da 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 -da. you know. Luckily, I'd been practicing mindfulness, and I saw, my God, do I have to be doing this right now? <laughs> you know? And because I could see it, I could let go. <sighs> well, where does your mind wander? Your mind wanders where you have trained it to wander. Fantasy, imagination, horror stories, into the past, into the future, it just wanders and we don't know it. But because we're practicing, 
because we are investigating this first noble truth, we're just taking a look, we see the wandering mind is dukkha. And when we see it, because we see it, we can have an intention to let go. And in that letting go, there is a moment of relief, isn't there? You find yourself just kind of like wound up and you go, oh, and, and just, the mind just lets it go and the mind just drops this burden of this train of thought or this idea or this mental construction and the body relaxes and it's so obvious that it's a relief both physically and mentally and the direct cause of that relief is because the mind has let go. We've all had that experience. You know what I'm talking about. Nevertheless, the mind still gets caught. We notice as frequently as we can. We let go as intentionally as we can. But sometimes our awareness or awareness will notice, you know, some drama in your life and up surges this emotional upsetness. You get re-angried or re-jealous or re-fearful or something, or you anticipate something that hasn't happened yet and get afraid of that. Nevertheless, sometimes emotion erupts in the mind and you see it and you'd like to say, okay, let go. <laughs> and you say, come on now, let go. <laughs> Come on, mind, let go. And it doesn't let go. Why? Because that conditioning in the mind is not susceptible to intentional release. It is a habit. It is a deeply conditioned habit that no momentary intention is powerful enough to overcome. And so we're, we're caught in this habit that we would prefer not to be stuck in and we're obsessing with anxiety, with fear, with jealousy, with regret, with anticipatory dread, with we're caught. So the Buddha offered the training in the continuity of awareness to get you some relief. And even though you been practicing here just four or five days, already you will have seen that as the continuity of your mindfulness increases, your ability to let go of emotional dramas also increases. We can see it and we can let go. Or we can see it, we can be with it in a non-reactive way and see that it doesn't last as long. Well. This too is a relief when the momentum of the mindfulness is such that obsessing doesn't get a hold of the mind or the mind doesn't get caught in obsessive habits. Well, this is a huge relief to not be tormented by our emotional dramas. Huge relief. And for a period of time, we can remain secluded from this kind of dukkha. A third experience of the end of dukkha, relief from dukkha, is when the wholesome factors of mind, which Kamala was speaking about the other night, when faith and energy and concentration and wisdom when they're aroused and they're in balance, when equanimity is developed and the mind is able to rest in non-reactive relationship to everything that arises, think about it. Anything that arises in your field of awareness, when the equanimity is strong, you don't suffer, no matter what it is. You see it for what it is. And while you may feel the pain or you may feel the, the joy, you know to grab onto it or to push it away is suffering. 
And so you just, the mind is able to stay in a relationship of awareness without reactivity. This is an ongoing experience of relief from the suffering of obsessive mind. You all have had tastes of it, periods of time, maybe only a minute, 30 seconds or two minutes, where you're just not obsessed. And there's just an easeful, ongoing presence with very ordinary or maybe dramatic experience. Where's the dukkha? Not dukkha. Why? Because there's no holding on in the mind. The mind every moment of mindfulness contains an element of letting go. And when the continuity of mindfulness is strong, the letting go is equally strong. And the mind just doesn't pick up anything or hang on to anything, thereby avoiding the dukkha caused by craving or clinging. Wow. Okay. There's a further way that we experience the end of dukkha through the practice we're doing here. And it's when the equanimity is strong and the insight knowledge begins to arise. Now, insight knowledge, as was previously mentioned, is of three kinds. Having done some of the personal history review and kind of repaired kind of, and regretted and remorsed the things of the past, and having established some steadiness of mindfulness and momentum to equanimity, the mind begins to see beneath the surface of things and realizes that everything is impermanent. Now, you know everything's impermanent. You know everything changes. We all know that. But we don't live it. We're still trying to make things not change. Relationships, finances, weather, kids, don't change. I like it the way it is. Even though we know everything changes. But when the insight into impermanence arises, the, the strength of that understanding in the mind is so powerful that no matter what arises in the mind, the, mind, the wisdom knows this does not last. And when everything that is seen is also seen and known to be impermanent, fleeting, actually, the mind does not reach for, nor cling to, nor grasp anything. There's an ongoing stream of not clinging, not craving, not grasping. Well, there's an ongoing stream of liberation, freedom, from the dukkha caused by the immediate clinging of the mind. Wow. That's insight. That's Vipassana insight. Insight into impermanence. There's another insight, another understanding that arises, and it's the understanding of dukkha. Now, I mentioned what dukkha is. It's pain, it's insecurity, it's the oppressive nature of phenomena. When the insight into dukkha arises, the understanding in the mind is this that is being experienced now has the characteristic of dukkha. If you know something is painful, you're not going to reach for it. You're not going to hang on to it. You're not going to yearn for it. If you know something is causing insecurity, you're also not going to reach for it and hang on to it. If you know it's oppressive, you're not going to reach for it. You're not going to hang on to it. The mind knows that. The wisdom of the mind realizes everything that is arising, moment after moment, has the characteristic of dukkha. And the mind doesn't even yearn for it, doesn't lean into it, doesn't reach for it, doesn't touch it, doesn't grasp it. There is an ongoing, well, we can't really say an ongoing letting go because the mind was never holding on. There is just an ongoing stability of awareness that is not clinging. And therefore, there is an ongoing 
liberation from dukkha. There's a third understanding, insightful understanding that arises. And it is the understanding that everything that arises is due to conditions. Just stuff happens. There's no real inherent anything to anything. It's all due to a conjunction of conditions coming together in this moment and producing the appearance that we're presented with. And the mind knows that. The wisdom of the insight into the anatta characteristic knows this is just an appearance due to a conjunction of conditions. It doesn't last. It has the characteristic of dukkha. There's nothing inherently there. When the mind and the wisdom of the mind knows that, it doesn't cling, it doesn't grasp, it doesn't reach, it doesn't depend on this momentary experience. And so again, there is this ongoing stream of liberated mind that is experiencing all that life has to offer moment by moment, and yet is not clinging to it. This is liberation through insight. When any of these insights become mature and the knowledge of this un these understandings is ripe and ripens in the mind, the mind has one further understanding of the end of dukkha to realize, and that is when the mind accesses the unconditioned. When the mind realizes Nibbana. Through the doorway of impermanence, understanding impermanence or dukkha or the insubstantiality of phenomena, with the mind ongoingly not reaching for and not clinging to anything Wisdom finds the way to the understanding beyond all known phenomena. It is a reality. Nibbana is a reality. It can be realized. It has no qualities of mind or body or physicality or mentality that can be used to describe it. We say it is ineffable. No words. It has no color, no shape, no taste, no flavor, no dimension, none of that. But it is a reality to be realized. It is a liberated mind. It is freedom from dukkha. And when the mind accesses, when wisdom knows or realizes the unconditioned. It is a powerful transformation. It uproots from the mind certain of the defilements, those visitors to the mind that cause so much suffering. It gradually uproots them from the mind, one at a time. And when these defilements are uprooted from the mind, the mind never again resorts to that defilement as a reaction to any condition. This is peace. This is peace. We say peacefulness or peace is the characteristic of Nibbana. It's real. It can be realized. The practice or the path to the realization of Nibbana and all the other momentary experiences of freedom from dukkha, liberation from dukkha, is the Noble Eightfold Path. This is the fourth noble truth. What we are doing here in every moment of our 
trying to be aware, trying to be mindful, is fulfilling the three trainings of the Eightfold Path. Purifying our speech and behavior by living according to the precepts. Purifying our mind by developing mindfulness that keeps the defilements at bay temporarily and for increasingly longer periods of time. And by undertaking the practice of wisdom or insight to purify our understanding. What we're doing here is, in every moment, fulfilling the Eightfold Path, which is the path that leads to the realization of the Third Noble Truth, the end of Dukkha, in so many ways, which was caused by the Second Noble Truth, craving, and freeing us from Dukkha all that dukkha that we know about, that we experience. What more can you do in every moment developing the Eightfold Path? Well, there's nothing else that needs to be done. In that moment of developing the path factors, you're doing the most that you can do to free the mind momentarily and in an ongoing way and permanently from the causes of dukkha. This is the teaching that the Buddha offered of his realization of the truth. We are so fortunate to have access to it. We don't need to look much further. This is, this is what the Buddha taught. All traditions of the Buddha's teachings stem from or spring from these understandings. The massive proliferation of practices and teachings and techniques and traditions and lineages all start from this understanding. If we keep it as simple as we can, what you're doing is as simple as it gets. And it is effective in realizing the Four Noble Truths. So let's sit for a moment, let the words quiet down. verses on the faith mind, the third Zen patriarch says, the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. If you wish to see the truth, hold no opinion for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the disease of the mind. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. for listening to the Dhamma. There's time for walking and then we'll have a late sitting at uh, 9.15. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash
donate.